Tom Coleman is a 1976 graduate of BJU. Uh, his wife, Becky, is also a graduate. Their three children are here as well. We welcome them. He is the pastor of the Calvary Independent Baptist Church in Huntington, Pennsylvania. That's central Pennsylvania. Uh, he's been there since 1989, and prior to that, he was on the staff at Bethel Baptist in Schaumburg, Illinois, where he also served as director of their Bible Institute. He went on after his undergraduate work and got a master's degree and, uh, and a doctorate here at BJU. He's on the board of the Keystone Christian Education Association and uh, fills other roles and serves on other boards throughout his part of the country. He's a graduate who has served God in great faithfulness, a graduate who has uh, gone on and uh, prepared himself as extensively as was humanly possible so that he might serve the Lord and be able to handle the scriptures with great care and great understanding. And we're glad God has brought him here to open the word of life to us these days. I thank the Lord for the opportunity to be here today. Dr. Bob, thank you for the kind words of introduction. Young people, I hadn't intended to say this, but I would like to pick up on something that he said. He mentioned extensive preparation. I guess I was here a long time. But I do want you to realize, in case you didn't listen carefully, that it wasn't cramming 10 years into four. I did work on two additional degrees after I graduated. I will tell you something. I have never regretted the time I spent in Bob Jones University. Somehow the Lord impressed upon my heart when I was in school that today's pastorate has become an administrative nightmare. A pastor finds himself oppressed with all sorts of the tyranny of the urgent, all sorts of details, all sorts of things that have to be done, and they're important. They have to be tended to. But a fellow has to fight to find time to give himself to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That was always my passion. I do the other things because they're required of me. But my passion was always prayer and the ministry of the Word. So especially to uh, you preacher boys, let me encourage you. You do what God leads you to do, huh? But don't be in a rush. If God will give you the opportunity to do some more training, do it and get everything you can get your hands on, because when you get out into the ministry, you'll be very, very glad you have it to draw upon. This is a great experience. What a wonderful day this is for me. Sitting where you sit, you may not be able to understand all of the emotion that it represents. And I worry sometimes that not only here, but in our churches, we take things for granted. This is, for me, I suppose, a little bit like being out in the trenches for 15 years and then coming back to the home base. It's great. And you don't realize what you have. I guess that's just sort of the way it is, but one day you will. And I hope that one day when you do, you will be loyal to Bob Jones University and to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom it represents. I'm proud of this school. I want this school to be proud of me, and I've never been ashamed of it. I don't have time to do a lot more, but I thought I would tell you one thing, especially for you freshmen that are here. I wanted to recount an experience that I had when I came here that was 1972. I didn't realize the impact of that, 
Brother Shelton this morning mentioned that he came on the campus as a freshman in 1947. That's amazing. I can't even comprehend that, but I, I guess I really haven't comprehended what it was like to come on the campus as a freshman in 1972 until a couple of years ago our church called a music director. And having poured over his resume and become acquainted with some of those details, I realized he was born in 1972. I heard last night the British speaker has an advantage. Then this morning you have a man speak to you that was a freshman in 1947. Kind of awesome to think about what am I going to say. I got to thinking about those two Indians that went out to send up some smoke signals one day. They didn't realize that they were on a U.S. Army testing range. So they began to send these smoke signals up to communicate with some others that were over a ridge or so. All of a sudden, the ground trembled. The United States Army set off an atomic blast, a test blast. This tremendous mushroom cloud billowed up. These two Indians looked at that, and the one guy looked at the other guy and said, Man, I wish I had said that. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. Let me direct your attention to chapter 2, verse 23, and I'll read down through chapter 3, verse 14. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believed not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven." 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for these moments. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for all that you've done. I pray that you'll bless these few moments as we look into the Word of God. Encourage our hearts, speak to us, meet our needs, help us to be everything that you would have us to be as a result of this time spent together. Lord, use me. I pray that you will use me the way you use so many other Bible conference speakers when I was a student. Be a blessing to somebody here today. Lift some load. Encourage somebody that needs to make a spiritual decision for you. I ask for your blessing for Jesus' sake. Amen. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. If you have any degree of familiarity with the Bible, then you know Nicodemus. He's that Pharisee, member of the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, who came to Jesus under the cover of darkness and heard from the lips of our Savior the most impressive and well-known account of the new birth anywhere to be found in the Bible. You know that. You may not be familiar with the fact that John is the only of the evangelists who mentions Nicodemus. He mentions him two other times. We'll see it in a while in chapter 7 and then again in chapter number 19. He comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, but when we come to chapter number 19, we find him in broad daylight. We find him no longer a secret disciple, but an open, declared, unreserved disciple. Men and women, I submit to you this morning that Nicodemus is an example of a man who was truly changed by the new birth. He is also an example of what the Lord Jesus Christ desires of me and of everybody who is in this room today. He desires, first of all, to bring us to himself in saving faith. And having begun that good work, he intends to deepen it in our hearts and in our lives until at some point we are not only saved, but we are truly surrendered, fully committed, openly declared, unashamed, unreserved, unavowed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like to show it to you in what I'm going to call three scenes in the message this morning. A message that I'll call at first by night, at the last by day. At first by night, at last by day. Scene number one we'll call a private interview. It's at Jerusalem. It's early in Jesus' ministry. It's at the feast of the Passover. The city hustles and bustles with all sorts of travelers and pilgrims that have come in order to observe that feast time. Jesus has apparently worked a number of miracles either on this occasion or perhaps prior to it. People had believed on him as a result of these things. 
there was a rather unlikely individual who was impressed as well. His name is Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is in a tricky situation. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees had not confessed Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That upped the ante somewhat. But the Spirit of God had begun to work in his heart. He found himself curious. He found himself impressed. And he may not have understood it, but he found himself strangely drawn to Jesus. How many of us today have had that experience? And so he came. But he came under the cover of darkness. And he asked that question of our Lord. Or actually, he put it in the form of a statement. He said, Teacher, we know that you've come from God. No one can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Wonderful, isn't it, to see how the Lord knows your heart. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows you're down-sitting. He knows you're uprising. He understands your thoughts afar off. And he saw right into Nicodemus' heart. He knew what the real burden of his soul was. And he said, Nicodemus, you're a teacher. You've instructed others. You know the Scripture. But unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless you've been born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was baffled. He said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus went on to explain. I think to myself, this man is a picture of the blind religionist. How typical he was of the Judaism of his own day. They had a form of godliness and there were sincere people here and there. We read about them in the pages of the New Testament, but the official leadership of the nation and many, many other people, they knew the forms, they knew the ceremonies, they knew the rituals, they knew the practices, but they didn't necessarily know the power of God. And had they had pulpits, their pulpits would have failed to declare in that day the life-changing message. He was baffled. He was ignorant of those things. Then I think to myself, how typical he is, not just of the Judaism of that day, but of liberal, apostate, Protestant Christianity at so many different junctures down through the years of church history. Reference was made Sunday morning in the sermon to England in the 1730s and the 1740s. Decadent society. We have a way of thinking that it's never been as bad as it is right now, but when you start studying, you find out plenty of times in the course of church history, it's been exceedingly dark. I think sometimes we just want to give ourselves an excuse. Decadent society. Clergy that was apostate, unbelieving. God was working, though, and God had chosen to work in the hearts and lives of some men. The Wesleys were mentioned Sunday morning. Let me tell you for just a moment about another man in whose heart God was working. His name was George Whitfield. George Whitfield also was a member of the Holy Club, perhaps one of the first to become dissatisfied because he had no peace as a result of all those different good things that he did, but good works do not save. He got a hold of a book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. That book caused him to recognize that you can go through the ritual. It's what he says, his own account, that you can go through the ritual. You can go through the forms and the formalities. You can know the customs and practices. You can be a, a part of the church and never really be born again. 
The Lord worked in his life. And by and by, he came to understand that the way a man is born again is exactly the way Jesus explained it to Nicodemus. You simply turn to the Son of God and in faith believing. It's not a matter of works. And then I think of the day in which I live and you live. Let me tell you, I can speak from my heart about this point because from a youth I came up in a mainline denominational church. We had the catechism. That's not all bad. In fact, one of the things of the Lord that were true there that I really learned probably was from the catechism and maybe a a sincere Sunday school teacher or so. But I remember at the age of 12 going to the communicants class to become a member of the church. They held that class for six weeks or so. It was in the pastor's office. I can still remember that. That was kind of fearful. We learned the Apostles' Creed. We had a book that was entitled How to Become a Member of the Presbyterian Church. It was a Presbyterian church. I still have it. I knew John 3.16 and there were times when I prayed, but I'm going to tell you something. In that church, it was back in the 60s, we never heard from that pulpit about being born again. Didn't that break your heart? And break your heart to realize that the grand old denominations, which in the past have done so much for God, many of them, most of them today, know no gospel they have in them for the most part, many times over unconverted clergy. George Whitfield got a hold of that message. He was born again. Joy filled his heart and soul. He began preaching about the new birth. They didn't like that in the Church of England. They didn't like it at all. In fact, Clergyman after clergyman began to close his church to George Whitfield. But you know when one door closes, God always has another one open. And when he opens it, no man can shut it. And when he, George Whitfield made the remark, the doors of churches are closing to me, but thank God the fields are open. And he began to preach about the new birth. Without any thought of being presumptuous, I suppose it's just possible that there's a student in Bob Jones University, and I have no idea what your background would be, but you've come here, and you've heard in Bible classes, and you've heard in dorm prayer meetings about being born again, and you've never been born again. And I want to come here this morning, and I want to tell you something. Good works won't cut it. Church membership won't cut it. Helping little old ladies across the street won't cut it. You need to be born again. You need to come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And maybe, just maybe, I can stand and speak here this morning for the Lord to some parent. And you've come here to visit your son or your daughter. You just don't know how they've prayed for you. They're burdened that maybe you've never been saved before, maybe you've never been born again, but you're a church member somewhere. You think that you're going to go to heaven because you've been baptized and because you've taken communion. And maybe, just maybe, God has brought you to this Bible conference to become aware of the fact that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, what a joy it would be these days for those prayers to be answered and for you in simple faith to come to the Savior and be everlastingly born again. Well, Jesus does what he can. He goes on and he points Nicodemus to himself. But you know, there's a little bit of drama here, I think. 
because the curtain falls on this scene, number one, without us really getting any glimpse into Nicodemus' reaction. Nothing is told to us in the text about how he responded, if he responded, or how he received those words. So I ask you to turn with me now to the second place in the Scripture, and this is John chapter 7. Let's continue the story. Let's move to the second scene. I'm going to hop around a little, so please follow with me. We'll call this scene a sincere defense. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now let's skip down to verse number 10. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. You'll notice that when we come in a little while to the reference to Nicodemus, I think I didn't mention this earlier, all three of these references that John makes refer to the fact that Nicodemus came at first by night. I think that's a decisive characterization. Let's don't miss it. Verse 11, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said he is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now skip with me to verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now skip with me to verse 45. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never a man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the, or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went into his own house. The curtain rises on scene number two, and we are back in Jerusalem. But this time, it's a good deal later, perhaps some two and a half years. It's the feast time again. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles, much later in Jesus' ministry. Were we to have read this whole chapter, and I hope I read enough for you to get a feel for this, the mood has changed a great deal. Earlier in John's Gospel, they sent the Pharisees, some to inquire about Jesus, who he was, but the mood is entirely different now. The hostility has deepened. The opposition to Jesus has deepened. In fact, the chapter starts off with our being told that Jesus was in Galilee. He walked no more in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So it's changed quite a bit. Now, to pick up the story, different reactions have occurred, as is noted in this chapter, towards Jesus. The Pharisees have basically made up their mind that they're going to take him. Their mood basically at this point is that they're going to do away with this troublesome man that was dividing the people and 
Many of the people were continuing to believe on him. And though the hostility and the opposition of the nation deepened officially, the common people heard him gladly. And many of them were following him. Many of them were being born again. So they sent officers to take him. Can't help but appreciate sometimes the humor of the word of God. They sent these officers to take Jesus and these guys went down there. And they got so taken with listening to him. They came back. The Pharisees looked at them. They said in verse 45, why have you not brought him? They said, we've never heard anybody talk like that. They were utterly frustrated and disgusted at that point. They said, are ye also deceived And they asked a question, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? And then they sort of trailed off, but this people, the common people who heard him gladly, but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. What an attitude they had. What a self-righteous arrogance they were possessed of. They got a real surprise. Let's just imagine it this way off to the side where they least expected it from among their own ranks, a man stands up, timidly at first, perhaps trembling. He's one of them. His name is Nicodemus. He is the one who came to Jesus at the first by night. He stands to his feet shakily, trembling perhaps. But he asks a very pointed question. He says... Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and knoweth what he doeth? You see, young people, that question put Nicodemus on the spot. He had to make a decision that day. He had to put up or shut up. He had to fish or cut bait. Thank God he did what he did. A sincere defense. What brought him to this place? What's come over Nicodemus in the past two and a half years that brought him to the place that he was willing to do this? I'll tell you, as you study his life in the Bible and as you look at the evidence in the text, I'll tell you the conclusion that I think you come to. I think you come to the conclusion that at some point after Jesus spoke to him the first time about being born again, he was. He believed. I'll tell you three reasons why I think that. To anticipate our story, and and don't turn, would you, because I want to get to this in just a moment. To anticipate our story, when you look at the last reference over in John chapter 19 to Nicodemus, you find that it mentions there in verse 38 a friend that Nicodemus had. This man's name was Joseph of Arimathea. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. I think that text implies pretty clearly that the two of them were friends, but it refers to Joseph of Arimathea as a secret disciple, and the implication is that he had been one for some time. I think that he and Nicodemus were secret disciples. I'll tell you a second reason. You can, if you like, turn to John chapter 12 for just a moment. And look at verse 42.
Here, John notes for us, nevertheless, among the chief rulers. Well, he was a ruler of the Jews. Don't miss that. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should put, be put out of the synagogue. I can imagine that when he stood to his feet that day and asked that question, he trembled. I can imagine that he was a little bit shaky. There was a price to pay to make that sincere defense. But the third thing that I note when we come back to the text where we've been in John chapter 7, I notice that it is at the precise moment that the Pharisees have asked that question. You find it again in verse 48. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? Let me put that for you a little bit differently, and it'll be accurate to the text, but bring the strength of the thought out a little bit more firmly. None, none of the rulers or of the Pharisees have believed on him, have they? The guy that's sitting over there knows that he has. He's got a decision to make. They've said none of the rulers or of the Pharisees have believed on him. He knows he has. He has a decision to make. You know, beloved, I think that God put him in that position to bring forward in his life the work of grace. Some of you are going to find yourselves put in that same situation because you're going to mix it up from time to time with people that don't think it's cool to love the Lord. Or you're going to be in some context where you are required or you're given the opportunity to speak a word for Jesus. Hey, let me tell you something. This may not be everything that we would like it to be. It's not quite on the order of that confession that the woman at the well made when she left her water pot and went back into the city and talked to those men who apparently knew her fairly well and said, come see a man who told me all things ever I did. This is the Christ, isn't it? It's not quite on that order. But the work of God is deepening in this man's heart, deepening in his soul. He finds himself unable to be silent. He stands, he speaks. Thank the Lord for that. Better to have weak faith than none at all. Amen? Before you are too hard on Nicodemus, just remember that a man so high and mighty as the Apostle Peter, under circumstances of duress, denied that he even knew him. Let's turn to John chapter 19 and take a few moments for scene 3. Again, there is just a little touch of the dramatic in this because curtain falls on scene number two. Still, we don't have the full story. We don't know what happened. They responded back to Nicodemus, but we really don't know what fallout there was. We don't really know where Nicodemus went from there. Let's come to scene number three in John chapter 19. Let's call this a bold confession. Let's pick it up at verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus. Look at that. There came also Nicodemus, which at the first 
came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. The curtain ascends for the last scene. It's still Jerusalem. What a dramatic place Jerusalem is. It's still Jerusalem, but now it's very late. It's the Passover time once again. Jesus has been crucified. And interestingly, the story picks up first not with Nicodemus, but with his friend, Joseph of Arimathea. A man who, as Luke notes in chapter 23 and verse 51, was a good man, a righteous man. He was a believing man. But it says something that I think was equally true of Nicodemus. It says that he could not consent to the decision of them. That is to say, and I think that this is true of both of these men, as time wore on and as they saw the direction that the nation, that is the official Jewish leadership, their own council, was taking, they realized that a parting of the ways was imminent. You see that text back in John chapter 7 said that Nicodemus was one of them. wonder how long, as it went through his mind, he thought to himself, how long can I continue to be one of them? But you see, they made a decision that was irrevocable. They made a decision that they were going to seek the life of Jesus. And now he's been crucified on the cross. And those two men recognized that that parting of the ways had come, that they were not going to be able to go along any longer. They were not going to be able to remain undercover any longer. Joseph could not remain a secret disciple any longer. Young people, let me tell you something. There come times in your life when there are things worth standing up for and there are things that you cannot go along with, nor should you. When they ask you to deny the Scriptures, just get up and walk out. When they ask you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, it's time to part ways with that kind of thing. This has nothing to do with being hard to get along with. It has nothing to do with being peculiar or cantankerous, but it has everything to do with loving the Lord. So Joseph, Mark chapter 15, verse 43 says he went in and desired or craved the body of Jesus. He says he went in boldly. And then you read what it says in John's gospel when it says, there came also Nicodemus. I love those words. His buddy, Nicodemus, the two men that probably had sat down and talked many times about what was going to happen. What is it going to come to as they saw the direction that the leadership of the nation was going? Let me show you something. They come at a time when maybe our reaction is to say it's too late. I tell you they came at a time when what they exhibited and what they did was almost more profound than had they identified with Jesus earlier. I'm not saying they shouldn't have. I'm simply saying that it's hard enough to identify with Jesus during his earthly ministry when they resented him and when they rejected him. But once he's been crucified and he's the object of scorn and contempt and ridicule and rejection, then to stand with him. Now that's courage wrought by the Holy Spirit. And he comes... Our Bible says 100 pound weight. You take the original term and figure out the English pound that we're familiar with, about 70-some pounds worth of spices. 
He's not under the cover of darkness anymore. He's not a secret disciple anymore. He's made an open declaration. He's made an open confession. I have to close this message, but not before I give you this thought that to me is the crux of it all. I'm interested in asking you a question. What do you think happened that brought this? One thing he was born again after John chapter 3. But I think we're all familiar with the fact that as born-again people, as Christian people, we're not always everything we ought to be for the Lord. Isn't that true? We aren't all sold out. We aren't all dedicated. We aren't all surrendered. What is it that brings us to that place in our lives where we realize that there has to be a parting of the ways, there has to be a change, there has to be a stand taken, no turning back, no turning back. I'll tell you what it was for Nicodemus, and it just might be that it's that for you today because it's a powerful thing. You look at verse 38 again, and what does it say in the first three words? And after this, what? After the crucifixion. After they both had the opportunity to see what was the result of those long thorns pressed down into his brow and the rivulets of blood that came down his face as a result of it. After they both had the opportunity to see those cruel spikes driven into his wrists and into his feet. After they both had the opportunity to see his side pierced by that Roman spear. And it just has to be that somehow the Spirit of God brought Nicodemus back to a scene three years before when Jesus said to him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must also the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, Jesus spoke to him in terms he could understand. He did know the Scripture, even though originally he wasn't saved. And he knew that scene in the wilderness where those fiery serpents, the judgment under the hand of Almighty God for their murmuring and their complaining, bit those people, venom coursed through their veins. There was absolutely no human remedy. And God told Moses, make a brazen serpent and put it up on a pole. And when they looked, they lived. Look and live. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. Somewhere along the line, he had recognized that he too had a venom in his veins. So do you, so do I. It's the venom of depravity. And there is no human cure. There's no church that can help you. There's no priest that can help you. There's no religious sacrament or form that can help you. But the Son of God can. And if you look to Him in simple faith, He can do something to counteract that venom. If you look to Him in simple faith as He's bleeding on that cross and you see there the precious blood that washes sins away and you put your faith in that alone, Man, I'm going to tell you something. At that moment, you can be born again for all God's eternity. You can be saved and know it. I think he looked on that cross, and I think he recognized if he had had the opportunity to use the words of the songwriter, 
Maybe he would have said it this way. He did it all for me. Oh, grace divine. Forevermore I'm his and he is mine. Because of Calvary. Because of Calvary, I live in him. Oh, praise his name. He did it all for me. And all of a sudden, young people, there's no price too great to pay. All of a sudden, when you recognize that and you see that and you see Jesus and you see everything he's done for you, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is able to use that truth for you and for me to recognize there's nothing too great. There's no price that's too great to pay. And there he stands out in the broad of day. He who at first came by night at last comes by day. There he is. There he is, a picture of exactly what God wants of me and of you. Hey, let me end here. He wants to bring you to himself in simple faith. He wants you to be born again. On the day that that occurs, he is going to begin a good work in your heart and in your soul that he'll bring to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He wants to bring you from that point of being born again to the point in your life as a Christian where you're out in the broad of day, you're declared. Where maybe you might say with Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, And when I sing that, I picked up on something years ago that I just love. I always like in my own heart and soul to reprise it this way. That last line, shall have my soul, my life, my all. Father, bless the word of God to our hearts. Fortify, encourage, bring forward the work of grace in the heart of some soul here today. Somebody here maybe needs to take a stand. Somebody that's been under the cover of darkness needs to be open and declared, fully surrendered, fully resolved to follow Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here today who's never been born again. Oh, my dear Father, use your word to work in some heart and in some life to the end that some dear, precious soul might be born again. Make us all stronger, more effective, more determined, more surrendered Christians. This is my prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.